when you don't bring boys into reading, bring boys into this kind of idea of literature and kind of telling these stories and finding new ways to express themselves, you're, you're taking away from them. And I think that's the important bit that I'm kind of really passionate about. That was author, podcast host, therapeutic coach and bibliotherapist Alex Holmes. Alex speaks so passionately about the importance and impact of reading for boys, how he came to work in the mental health sphere and understanding how to communicate about self-love in a way that resonates more deeply with men. Before we begin today's episode, I'd love to encourage you to head over to happiful.com. We've recently brought all of Happiful's offerings together under one digital roof, so you can now read articles, find out more about this podcast, subscribe to receive a free copy of the magazine in your inbox, and find the right therapist for you. Simply visit happiful.com to find out more. This is I Am, I Have from Happiful. I'm producer and host Lucy Donoghue, and here's Alex Holmes. Today we're joined by Alex Holmes. Alex is an author, therapeutic coach, podcast host, and bibliotherapist who focuses on mental health and healing through the use of literature. Welcome, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me. Can I ask you to introduce yourself in your own words and tell us what you think we should know about you? So my name is Alex Holmes. I'm a podcast host. I started podcasting in 2016. I had a books podcast called Mostly Lit. And then um, when that ended, I created my own podcast, which has gone through several iterations and several names. We're in the process of producing episodes. It's called You Should Probably Read This. And in those, I talk about books that can be used for their clinical purposes to help people through particular emotional issues, to help people through um, difficult stages in life, and just as a way to get men in particular reading broadly around uh, particular um, topics and to get them to think deeper, go through a process of self-inquiry. So I'm a podcast host. I'm an author. In 2021, my first book, Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection, uh, was released. I said it's a love letter to all those who have lost men to suicide, but also to men who, who want to think and feel deeper about themselves and feel better about themselves. And also to the people that love men, uh, want to see them heal and do better. It's so important because... It can, you know, when we talk about men's mental health, we it can better the lives of women and children um, and so many other uh, people, non-binary people. Once we heal whatever stage of masculinity, maturation we're in now, um, we could really grow as a community, as a society, once we really understand what it means to be a man today. So in this book, I, I wrote this before I became a coach, before I started training as a therapist, before anything, I was pretty much a journalist writing this book. And I interviewed so many different people around their experiences of masculinity from various backgrounds, various experiences. And it was just an, an amazing time just getting thoughts and ideas together. There's six myths in there that, that we break down. Yeah, that's time to talk. How men think about love, belonging, and connection. So I'm an author, but I'm a trainee psychotherapist, and I currently work as a therapeutic coach, working as an existential coach and bibliotherapist. As an existential coach, I work with the the questions that plague our existence, um, with the anxieties and the things, the uncertainty. Um, you know, personal freedom. Um, looking at our authenticity, what it means to be us, courage, those sorts of things. Who am I? I work with a lot of people going through transitions in life, 
So they're either leaving work and going into a new role, they're stepping down from a role, becoming a father, divorcing, becoming a parent, those kinds of transitions, just big major shifts in life that invite us to have deeper questions for ourselves. That's the existential side. And the bibliotherapy side is the part of me which loves books. And I realized that I love books so much uh, that books have been a huge part of my of my journey and of my own um, personal healing that I realized that it's a great way to get people into the mental conversation. And because I do work predominantly with men and a lot of my content and work is directed at men, it's a good way to get men as, as a low bar, low entry, low intensity investment into speaking about mental health as well. Yeah, so when we look at things like anxiety, empathy, those sorts of stuff, I can probably pull out a book and just say, so have a read of this um, and then come back to me when you know we can book another session and we can work through some of the stuff. And it just helps people articulate what's going on with them you know, in a better way. Um, and what do I want people to know about me? I want people to know that I'm going through it as much as anybody else's. I think one of the things that um, in my naivety, before I started training, um, as I went into training as a psychotherapist, I was like, okay, I'm going to know everything by the end of it. So I'm going to be, I'm going to have top tier mental health. I'm going to have top tier emotional well-being. I'm going to be great, 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 everything. I'll have all the answers. And going through the existential process that, I've, that I just spoke about and the training and like self-reflection and a lot of different things, I've just really come to terms with the fact that I'm consistently learning and constantly learning. And that is what it means to be human. We are consistently learning and we are consistently you know, getting things wrong, learning lessons, correcting ourselves, you know, going through the same lesson over again until we learn. And I think it's important for us to just have a lot more compassion for ourselves. I struggle with that too. I can be very hard on myself at times. And, you know, it can be contrary to what I tell my clients just for them to be kinder to themselves. But I see myself in a lot of, um, a lot of people, I see myself in a lot of things. Yeah, and we will have our moments, but we all need that special guide just to kind of get us along. I'm human like everybody else. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And we're going to dig deeper with some of your I ams. But I definitely appreciate the comment about believing that we can have top tier mental health when we apply ourselves to learn and understanding that we're all human and we're all going to be ever evolving and learning. And that's what it is to be human. And I'm really desperate to get into your first I am because this is something I want to hear from you about. So your first I am is I am a reader. Tell us more. Yeah, so as long as I can remember, I've always had a book in my hand. My earliest memory is just me being in my room, probably, I want to say, five, six. And I had like an English, French kids book that had the, you know, the French word for something, the English word for something. It was very basic. Um, but it was something that I was really, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with it. I really enjoyed just escaping into new worlds and getting away from this one you know, obsessing over my private thoughts and learning and, and building relationships with characters that I weren't physically real, but they were real to me, you know, being part of a completely new world. So I've always been um, an observer. I've always been an observer of stories, um, a writer of stories, a teller of stories. And a lot of my life has been that way inclined. We all have these big stories 
inside of us and we all have these big things that are growing everybody has different experiences and not every story is the same they're similar but they're not the same everybody reacts differently and I picked all of that up from the amount of books I'd read from the things I'd learned from the people I'd met and the things I'd observed and the things I'd observed within myself as well yeah I think that being a reader has really helped me notice things that a lot of people don't really take notice of being able to provide people with books that that suit them and and fit them um, and that they would probably like if they gave it a try and I know that not everybody is a big reader and it can be quite intimidating to to sit down and and read a book but I always encourage people to try and I'm one of the only readers in my family as well so it's actually quite can be quite challenging to get people on side there is real power, isn't there, as you've just described, in reading and making sense of the world or different worlds or escaping to different worlds through reading. Can you tell me why it's so important to advocate for reading for young men and boys? As a boy who preferred reading over, say, being outside, playing football, on skateboards, I mean, not to say that I didn't do those things, but what I preferred was to do the do the opposite. It was a, it was kind of like my first real look into what it means to be a man and what it means to kind of own your own masculinity and what that looks like. You know, I think it's stereotypically understood that reading and spending time in fantasy worlds or spending time daydreaming or just reading large amounts of literature is can be quite a feminine trait. And I'm just really passionate about debunking that because I think that you know there are stats out there that have shown that boys and girls have huge empathy gaps and fiction is a great way of building empathy with within boys um, and helping boys to better understand themselves in the literature and in the stories whether that be graphic novels or you know fully worded fiction these are ways to be to give yourself the imagination to think differently and to think outwardly about what's going on inside but when we're learning how to emotionally regulate ourselves through uh, physical activity and through teams where emotion and every and every boy has gone through a similar kind of conditioning where no one is being is able to regulate themselves because the whole focus is on winning you're not going to think about oh this is teamwork Guys, you know, you might be feeling frustrated. You might be feeling that you're not raising empathetic boys. You're raising boys who are super driven, ego-centered. This is important in a team, like to in order to win. But you need to be able to maintain the morale of the team in order for you to win and win effectively. So I noticed quite early that when I was in these teams, I was very much like the team rallyman or the team hugger and be like, yeah, guys, it's all good. It's all good. But then you had, you know, yeah, guys who were so amped up all the time because if somebody didn't pass to them, they would have a tantrum. Some, if they shot and, they, and someone missed, they would have a tantrum. Somebody, you know what I mean? But that was all accepted on the pitch. And I just didn't understand that. But then you see these same traits as boys grow older into men. And we see these traits and then you just take that, you take the pitch you take it to road rage you take it to working in um companies as managers you know when you should be working as a team and whatnot you take it to in your family if things don't go your way what do you do all of these different stages of your life all kind of fall back to that to those moments when you're a boy and you could have had the process of true emotional regulation and learning what it means to be emotionally literate and understand that because boys are really under indexed in things such as literacy and education 
know, and we and boys are falling behind um quite a lot in that too. Um doesn't mean to shift them away from their nature. It only adds value. It doesn't take anything away. But when you when you don't bring boys into reading, bring boys into this kind of idea of literature and kind of telling these stories and finding new ways to express themselves, you're, you're taking away from them. And I think that's the important bit that I'm kind of really passionate about at this stage. At the beginning of the podcast, one of the things that you mentioned was that quite often books can be low level intensity when it comes to starting to talk about your mental health as a man. And I wondered if you could just share a bit more of, of how you've seen that and how you've worked with other people using reading as a, a catalyst. A lot of my examples come from when I'm doing workshops on masculinity with year 10s, year 11s, getting them to read a passage from from a book with, with very specific ideas and very specific um, topics and themes in them. What it does is then it, it opens up a conversation about it. For example, like I haven't done this. I haven't done this one. But there's this poem that always stays in my mind, which is Phil Larkin's To This Be The Verse. And um, he talks about, you know, parents and about how they pass down traits to you and you have to be very mindful of that. And, you know, they may try their hardest not to but they do and all these things. I don't want to say too much about the poem because there's loads of swearing in it. Is this they fuck you up your mum and dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They fuck you up your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the thoughts you had and save some extras just for you. And then there's more to it. Um, so that kind of entry to somebody who comes to me and says that they are having, they're having trouble living up to the expectations of their parents and they want to do X, but they are being told to do Y, and they really want to come leave and be out of the hook of their parents' expectations and whatnot. And it's a, and it's a poem that I kind of think about a lot because I personally have had these experiences too. And then you hand them the poem because the poem is it doesn't have to be that long. It can literally just be what, two, three verses, which is probably what ten lines, um, not too many words, but it's packed with them with so much meaning. And to just sit there and say, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. It's a dose of honest compassion. I've never, like when I first read that book, I was like, wow. When I first read that poem, I was like, wow. The first line to understand that, yes, you they do that because they have their own ideas about what they want for their kids and what they've been through and what they don't want for their kids. They may not mean to, but that's what they do. And you have to sit there and have that conversation and think to yourself, all right, so if they don't mean to do that, but they do, then there must be a level of compassion that you start to build for them over time. And start to, I mean, you start to meditate on those sorts of ideas and whatnot. So that's just one example of being able to being able to bring somebody in literature, because the idea is that you don't feel alone in it. There are so many people and in like presently, there are so many people through history and there's so many ideas that have been passed down to us and so many things. It's impossible to be alone. Somebody somewhere has gone through what you're going through in some way, shape or form. Exact, but as I said earlier, not exactly the same, but there is an experience that somebody can share with you. And I've just finished reading a book called Don't Cry For Me by a man called Daniel Black. And it chronicles the story of a Black father who grew up in the South in the 1930s. And he never had his parents. He grew up with his grandparents and, he, and his brother and spent most of his time working in the, in the cotton fields. 
picking because they were sharecroppers as you know post-slavery this is what it was it's written from the perspective of him um, on his deathbed writing a letter to his son and all the things that he never communicated while he was raising him all the things that he never been able to say from you know how he grew up to his lack of edu- his you know, his personal lack of education the relationship that he had with his grandfather, the relationship he had with, with his brother. In fact, he never knew his mom. The fact that, you know, when he met his son's mom, what, like, you know, his limited understanding of what love was. All of these powerful, really colorful experiences that he's had and how that fractured the relationship between him and his son all the way to the end. And, and it was such a beautiful reflection because for me, in my personal experience as a person of West Indian descent, it's a very similar story. Yeah, your grandparents, the person who's writing is probably more my grandparents' generation than my dad's. But you have your grandparents who grew up in a particular way, you know, picking picking stuff from fields and, and, you know, lack of education because it's a post-slavery era, having to make their way through life in a particular way, understanding what a, what a man was or who a man is and all these different things, raising their children in the way that they know how, feeling disconnected from their kids and then feeling really regretful on their deathbed. And I think that that is literally what the what the trajectory is for a man a lot of the time because of the way that we've been conditioned to feel about things and just the way that our behaviour is corrected by a lot of men and a lot of the shame that we go through, a lot of the anxieties, a lot of the feelings of disappointment and disconnection, um, expectation, all of these things that just aren't lived up to be hard pressed to find a boy who wasn't either living in the shadow of his father or was actually really disconnected from his father and really challenged challenging how he understood himself as a man growing up from that from those particular generations before us so things like that being able to provide something that can articulate an experience or at least begin a conversation about particular experiences it may not have gone through what he went through with his granddad but you may think my granddad wasn't the most tactile person. How do I process? How can I process that sort of thing? And it's just a way in, a way, way in. A lot of boys and men don't have that inner dialogue or the, the language to be able to speak to themselves in that way. So yeah, it's definitely important. And that's just not, that's not just men. I mean, women and girls have a bit more access to, you know, literature and books and whatnot. Um, and when you look at bibliotherapy itself, it is very, very women dominated and populated in that because, you know, it's understood that women and girls read more um, and women and girls do read more across the UK and the US. I want that to change. I want men to read broadly and confidently and be able to begin to start that work of challenge, of challenging themselves. And listening to everything you've just said, I can hear the power and you said the way in, which I think is, you know, that summarizes it perfectly. It's a way in and it's a start of a conversation and it's a, a perspective shift, I guess, viewing something through the lens of another person and relating that back to how that might apply to your own life or where the similarities or where the differences are. And yeah, I can just hear that it's so powerful and you're so passionate about it as well and sharing that with other people which speaks to your second I am which is I am a healer can you share a bit more about your I am as a healer and why that's so important to you when I was um, when I was younger I used to watch um, Charmed which wasn't very common for a lot of boys to watch but I was fascinated by the supernatural and um, to this day I love watching fantasy stuff 
and and the like. And this is one of the early fantasy things along. I never watched Buffy. I never watched any of those things. Um, but Charmed was something that I always kind of kept up with and even rewatched recently. And um, I really identified with the character Leo. And if you don't know who Leo is, Leo is what they call a white lighter. And they are typically guardians of witches and they provide counsel, wisdom, knowledge and um, healing for, for wounds and just being able to actually you know help witches continue and continue their life based on the fact that demons are always after them and I was just really like fascinated with with that as a particular kind of power you know there was loads of fancy powers around you know blowing stuff up moving stuff around but I was thinking like the healing stuff was really important because you really underestimated where that came from and there were times and you know and I think there was one scene you know he was really hurt and he couldn't heal something and um and somebody had his powers and he, they were trying to he was trying to get them to heal someone and he was like it has to come from your heart it has to come from love like this is what it this is what it's about. And I kind of subconsciously subconsciously carried that with me. And I think um, growing up, I was always somebody who was there to listen to people. I was always somebody who was there to provide that counsel. You know, you're young, so you have a very limited view on the world, but you think that you have the view that you need for whatever particular point. And um, I've just found that uh, people have always come to me and asked me questions and and I've always been able to listen to what people are going through. So it's natural that I ended up in this profession, in the professions that I was in, whether that be the teaching profession or the journalist profession, and now the, the therapeutic profession, the helping profession, because I was always concerned with other people and how they processed things and how they learned about themselves and how they can kind of move from one place to the next. And I'm always concerned about people coming to me and then leaving feeling different i never wanted anybody to feel that with an encounter with me that it was like that it was a negative encounter or it was an awful encounter or whatnot and you know you can't control everything because there's some days where you're just where, you know you're not gonna vibe or connect with people in some ways but i was very concerned like i really wished that i really wanted people to come and speak to me and if they did come and speak to me i want them to leave with a smile on their face or thinking differently and whatnot um, and it wasn't until my nan passed away in the end of 2019 that I sat down and thought about what I wanted to do with myself. This is before I began training. Um, my nan was in and out of hospital. She had a heart problem. And so she had to take loads of medication towards the end of her life. And I remember sitting there with her, rubbing her feet, you know, helping her just with medication, just getting her to take it because she was stubborn. Um, and trying to, you know, do all this stuff and um, just being gentle, but like courageously gentle. So not just like, you know, not passive, but, you know, I'll wait with you, but it has to be taken before I leave here sort of thing. Um, and then she said something to me as I was leaving. She says, you know, you would make a great therapist. You would make a great nurse because my nan, she was a nurse. And that's always sat with me. Because I'm just like, I've never had anybody affirm that. I provided a lot for a lot of people over like across my life up to that point, hearing that from my grandmother was so affirming that I thought I want to look into working in those kind of professions in healing. And, and I, then I went on to train as a health coach and I went on to, I did mental health first aid training first. And then I went on to train as a health coach and I wanted to learn more about the body and what happens to us when we're stressed and when we're overburdened and whatnot, what, what that does to us. 
you know, where the blood goes, you know, what happened, like just what stress does. And then I thought the coaching module was really great. So I decided that I wanted to go to do a, um, a, a psychotherapy diploma because throughout my podcast, everybody who had been on or had listened had always messaged me and said, have you thought about becoming a therapist? Have you thought about becoming a therapist? This feels really cathartic. And I just kept saying, no, 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 no. And there was only so lot, so much I could say no for before it was actually like, you're just defying reality right now. <laughs> yeah. Everybody is telling you one thing, look into it at the very least. And I did. And it was one of the best things that I've ever done going to therapy and then beginning to train as one. That's fantastic. And as you were saying that, I was imagining all these kind of signposts in your way, you know, sending you towards that. And also I was thinking about reading because, you know, there is part of working with people and that healing profession, which is reading the subtext, which is working with someone to understand the words and how we talk about ourselves and how we talk about situations. So it feels like it's all part of your evolution in that way. Yeah, I guess it is. Beautiful that your nan said that to you as well. And then she passed away the next day. So I was like, I was like, that's my, that was my, that was my, that was her parting gift with me. I had to take these things as like, you know, just as what they are sometimes. And um, yeah, it was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And your next I am is along that vein, which is I am loved. Tell us about being loved. I am loved. I think that when I look at the the psychodrama that a lot of men go through and go under, it's feelings of shame are quite prevalent. Feelings of worthlessness are quite prevalent. Lack of vulnerability quite prevalent. All of that is missed. But we're expected to be courageous, though. For me, I was like, I can't be courageous if I don't know what it means to feel love, really. It's a, like a, it's a really weird combination of love and fear, courage. You just got to you either do the thing and do it anyway. But it's like, you have to really feel that drive to want to do something, to be courageous in something. Yeah, I went through a lot of my life feeling that I wasn't loved. And not that I was neglected or anything. You know, I come from a loving family. Like we all love each other and I've got friends and whatnot. I think there was just a feeling of loneliness. And, you know, I was the only one that really read. I was the only one that thought deep about things. I was the only one that asked questions. I was the only one that challenged ideas. I was the only one that was kind of subversive in, in many different ways. And um, it was like, no one loved me for me. Like, no one wanted to partake in those kind of conversations or those ideas or those things. No one cared about what I was reading, what I was going through, what I was experiencing sort of thing but I cared so much about other people so as you grow up in that sort of context from day-to-day -day life you're consistently pouring from an empty cup so I had to, to over time as these feelings of shame lack of vulnerability and worth um, and lack of worth kind of were building up within me I wasn't pouring enough back into myself I wasn't allowing myself to feel worthy or capable of anything I didn't feel purposeful I felt ashamed of myself I felt really like I didn't you know I stopped reading books for a long time because I felt like I was just I felt like I had to be more active I had to you know do the boisterous stuff I had to do the cool stuff I couldn't like you know reading a book it was just like this guy's just a nerd or whatever so I kind of shut a lot of myself off but well that wasn't really loving to me I wasn't loving myself in the way that I need to and I know a lot of men don't speak about love for themselves and love for other people they don't speak about that so it took me a process of understanding that of reconnecting and re-emerging into myself when I began to have deep 
um, mental health disturbances at work when I was as a journalist, when I began to feel overly stressed, overly burdened, um, really pained when I began to do that. And I sat down on my therapist and then she began to, you know, go through a process with me of just asking, who are your friends? Who do you love? How do you love? Who are the people that love you? All these kind of things, like just building that sort of understanding, that vocabulary, that language so I can begin to talk to myself in the best possible way. That's where I came to. I came to, you know, a daily practice of saying, okay, you may not have, you may not have the the abs that you want, but I love you nonetheless. You may not have read 500 books, but I love you nonetheless. You may not have, you may not earn the most, but I love you nonetheless. And you know what I mean? Just telling myself and, and conditioning myself to understand that I start with love. I start my day with love and I end my day with love. And that that informs the context for everything I do. So that, and that allows me to then be authentic and honest and do, do that. But then in, in doing that, I've received so much from other people. The family that I felt didn't love me in the way that I wanted to, love me in the way that they know how. So they love me. My friends, friends are different because you choose them sort of thing. They love you for who you are, who you show yourself to be. You walk down the road and you smile at a stranger and they smile back and you say, good morning, good day, whatever. And they, and if they, you know, if they respond, if they feel that you know that's a that's a loving connection and you're just kind of moving with that so just knowing that as I walk through my days in my life knowing that I'm loved is an important really important factor for me because then it allows me to then operate authentically in life thank you and I I can really hear the importance of that practice for you and also the importance of speaking with a therapist who got you to to start to consider love mm. in that way. And I found it really touching when you said, my family love me in the way they know how, because I think that's something that we can all think about is that that sometimes it, it might not look like we expect it to, but when we understand that that's love, that can be transformational. I would love you to, to just talk a little bit more about the work that you do and working with men and if you had any thoughts on that that kind of concept of self-love because you made a point which is that women and girls there is a lot of conversation around self-love and self-acceptance and you will know more about this than me but I don't see or hear that conversation in the same way that perhaps I see it with female family and friends and and is that something that you work with men upon? And one thing I've came, come to understand is that men and women require, and non-binary, require different things when it comes to these areas. Men are over-indexed in, in performing and acting in one way. Women are over-indexed in performing and acting in another way. Non-binary, sort of in between the two, depending on where they're conforming or what they're conforming to and defining their own experience for themselves. But when it comes to men, it's about helping men find a balance I think a lot of the time we're raised quite imbalanced. We're over-indexed in a particular way. So when it comes to things like, oh, saying things like, oh, love yourself, learn how to love yourself and whatnot, that's not the best way to enter into mental health or therapeutic conversation with a man because you're, you're, you're speaking a language that they do not understand. It was certainly a language I did not understand. I was like, what are you talking about? I love myself, obviously. What are we doing here? Um, I think the importance with men is actually helping them understand that they have purpose 
that they have value. And when you start to begin there, you have purpose, you have value, you know, you have freedom, you have choice. Let's start there. And then you can start to build on that consistently to get to a place where they begin to get used to the conversation, get used to the process, and then understand that love is something that comes from them having value for themselves, feeling valued, feeling cared for, feeling appreciated. But because a lot of men are conditioned to be external, so all of that comes from typically conditioned for women to do that to men. A lot of men need, need to build that kind of inner resolve for themselves because when it does come from external places now, it just meets you in an, in an equilibrium, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm already feeling value, if I already have value for myself, if I already feel worthy, if I already have feel like I've got a purpose, I'm building towards a purpose. And then somebody comes to me and says they value me and, that, and tell me that I'm worthy and whatnot and show me that I'm worthy. It just adds to my understanding of who I am and it just allows me to live in my authenticity and live in my integrity and live in my values. So we have a language problem in the UK, definitely. We see we see it a lot on we see it a lot in the news. Like people are humming R in over systemic, institutional, and all these different things. They're just really buzzing around these words, but they're all the same thing. Um, men have a language issue. And that, that stems all the way back down to what I was talking about earlier about reading. And it's important. I think if we look at things like, okay, we're going to talk about books again. If we look at things like Harry Potter, for example, now this wouldn't be a spoiler to anybody who hasn't read, but you're going to have to, you know, it's a 25-year-old book. So, I mean, get to it. But, you know, there is a sort of understanding around love as the magical protection. But that very specific understanding of love wasn't even introduced into the stories until like the fourth or fifth book when Harry was growing in his maturity. So in the first book, it was mentioned slightly, but it wasn't it wasn't delved into so early on. It took a process of two, three, four books in Harry's years, four years before he realized that love was the thing that was protecting him and keeping him going. He couldn't articulate love as a boy in that way going through somebody who's been abused by his aunt and uncle you know bullied by his cousin treated awfully by certain people throughout his life and whatnot he didn't understand what love was there was nothing for him to get he never had friends he never had any of these things but throughout the seven years he began to understand as he got towards the end of the series that that love was the key to all of his mother's sacrifice his father's sacrifice everything that was going on and I think that's the same sort of metaphor that we have to start applying, especially when it comes, and it's very clever the way the author wrote that about, I mean, politics aside, the way the author wrote that about, about, the, about a boy's experience and what that, and what that means going through to the end. And that can be applied to anybody, but if we're talking about men and boys specifically, it's a process towards getting there. So I always say when we talk about men's mental health and we're talking about these things, we have to take it slowly. We have to take it differently. But when we have an industry that doesn't have many male psychotherapists, that doesn't have many men in the industry because they're socially conditioned not to be in these con in these professions and whatnot, the numbers of male psychologists has dipped, numbers of male teachers have dipped, 
number of male health and health educators or in healing professions has dipped. So the language has not been introduced. That's why it's so important that you do the work you do and also the advocacy and the the speaking and the podcast and everything that you do. And really thank you for that and for sharing so openly today uh, everything that's brought you to the place that you are. And we're going to move on to what I have, which is I have thousands of stories in me and I am never alone. Can you share a little bit more about that and, and what that means to you? In my life and times, I mean, I'm only 31. Um, I've spoken to so many people, whether they be clients or on podcasts or as a journalist, interviewing people. I've spoken to so many people, whether that be family, friends, just learning, learning, learning so much more about them. And they tell me their stories and um, they sit with me and I learn so much. I mean, my my last living grandparent passed away in January and... Um, I sat with him and he told me so many stories about his life that I recorded because I thought to myself, I don't know if I'm going to hear these again. Let me just record them. And I recorded them and he's just telling me so many things and so many similarities and so many journeys that he'd been on. All he needed was an audience to listen. I think that was important for him. And um, I've read so many books. I love young adult fiction. It's my favourite. And um, beautiful stories in there. As I said earlier, I think, you know, when, when there's so many people that have come before us and there'll be so many people that are after us and there's so many people that are here now, it's very challenging for me to think about feeling alone because they're here. They may not be physically here, but their memories, their thoughts, their ideas are here. Not all of them are good ideas, not all of them are good thoughts, not all of them are good memories, but they're here. And it allows us to then make a decision and discover new things about ourselves new ways of communicating so many stories so many things bubble up so many things so many as soon as you step out of the house even if you don't step out of the house so many things that prop up to you you learn something new about yourself every day and it just becomes a new story so many stories and I'm not alone that's lovely thank you for sharing that about your granddad as well I can only imagine how special that was to hear those stories from him and have those in your memory bank as it were and from the past to the future a final question which is if you could meet Alex in 10 years time so you've just said you're only 31 so 41 year old Alex what do you hope future Alex would say to you either about the future or just where you're at I hope he says keep going I really hope he says keep going don't like it, it may be really fuzzy right now but trust me keep going that's what I'd love to hear that's what I think I would hear that's that's what I would say to me if I was 41 <laughs> and year old, I'd be like this baby keep going <laughs> like, I'll resend this to you in 10 I'll make a note in my diary now and send it. it to you in 10 years from do now it. and we'll have a have a little chat see where we're both at at that point Alex, I can't tell you how much I've loved this conversation. I can hear your passion. I really appreciate your time. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they head to? I would say head to my website, which is alexholmes.co. So alexholmes.co and find everything there. If you, um, I think the the lo-fi thing you could do is subscribe to my podcast and subscribe to my newsletter. You should probably read this. Every Sunday, I will be sending out little musings on books and mental health, just something to kind of round your week off nicely or set your week up going ahead. 
um, and the podcast, we are in production. So when those episodes release, just stay tuned for some new stuff coming. I'm looking so looking forward to that. We'll make sure all of that's in the show notes as well. So you can just go and click and we'll also some of the books that you've mentioned will pop in the show notes as well. Yeah. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to I Am, I Have. Don't forget to head across to habfor.com for more great mental health and wellbeing conversations. If you're looking for mental health support, you'll find information on our site, including links to counselling directory and to charities. If you need immediate help, you can call the Samaritans 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123, or you can email joe at samaritans.org. You do not have to be in crisis to receive their support and help is available. I'm Lucy Donoghue, the producer and host of this podcast. I hope you'll listen again soon.